the glory of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Abram has a problem that might be familiar to many of us. He wants so badly to trust God. Because what God has promised him is incredible. But on the other hand, there's mounting evidence that God may not be able to deliver on what has been promised. The struggle with control is the kind of problem that I often wrestle with. Maybe you do too. I want so badly to be laid back. I want to go with the flow and trust others that when they say they're going to hold up some end of an agreement, whether a meeting or a dinner plan or returning a phone call, that they're going to follow through at the right time and be in the right place. I want so badly to be that kind of person, or at least for other people to think I'm that kind of person. (laughs) And I find myself so often falling short. I am, I confess, the person who is 15 minutes early and considers that barely on time. And I try not to look visibly disappointed if those who are meeting me are late, but I struggle because, of course, I am self-righteous. I go over driving directions three times to make sure I'm taking the best possible route. I hate being out of control. So when Abram questions God in our reading from Genesis, I feel like I understand where he's coming from. Put it like this. You know, God, I know you have promised to do some amazing things for me, but in case you haven't noticed, I'm not getting any younger, and Eliezer of Damascus is measuring my tent for new goat skins. So I'm just kind of wondering, what timeline are we working with? And the shift for Abram from these questions into deeper faith happens in a deceptively simple step. God shows him the stars. Now, I don't know when the last time you went outside on a clear night to see the stars was, but it can be a powerful experience to stand with your eyes turned toward the sky and see just how infinitesimally small we are in the vast expanse of space. So God, somewhat sarcastically, asks Abram to count the stars if he can count them. God has a great sense of humor. Count the stars. That's the number of your descendants. The stars go on seemingly forever, and they are as impressive as they are numerous. And suddenly, something inside Abram shifts. Something falls into place. He's not argued into faith. He's not brought from doubt into trust by the weight of the convincing rhetorical arguments that you hear from this pulpit every Sunday. Uh, He is miraculously converted to trust that the same God who made the stars and the sky is going to overcome the sterile reality of his life and give him a future characterized by an abundance the likes of which he cannot even begin to grasp. The creation of the universe and the birth of a son are for Abram far beyond his understanding. As concepts... They exist in his mind in the same way that Belgium exists in mine. Now, I'm sure that Belgium is real, but I've never been there. And so until I get to Brussels or Antwerp and have their famous waffles, it's really hard for me to live as if Belgium really exists. This is the problem that Abram has conceiving his child. 
Because he doesn't have a son. He doesn't see the possibility. And so he has to place his life in the hands of God despite what he can see. He has no children. He has no reason to expect any kind of change. He's not going to be doing anything different. But he trusts God enough to surrender his control. And he is changed. Despite the barren circumstances and despite the birthdays starting to stack up, Abram believes. This is the miracle of faith, like Simon Peter, who bursts out his confession in the Gospel of Matthew when asked who he says that Jesus is. Abram is changed completely. And the righteousness that is assigned to him here is linked directly with this kind of trust. He trusts in God's designs for a good future, and despite the barren present, he will go forward trusting in God. But Abram asks for a sign as a seal of this promise, so God tells him to prepare a sacrifice. Abram gathers some animals, a young cow, a goat, a ram, a dove, and a pigeon, and then he butchers them. He cuts the larger animals in half and sets the pieces opposite one another so that there's a space between. How big a knife do you need to cut a cow in half? You'll have to imagine the scene. Unfortunately, we're not able to do the reenactment I wanted this morning. (laughs) But there is a lot of blood. There's a lot of blood, enough to attract the carrion birds that Abraham has to drive away. And when the sun goes down, a dreadful darkness closed in, and the covenant between the Lord and Abram is made. A smoking fire pot and a flaming torch pass between the pieces of the dead animals in an ancient ritual with clear and stark implications. In this moment, the two parties say, in essence, let the two of us be like these slaughtered animals if we break the promise that we have made to one another. The Hebrew phrase here is karat berit, which literally means to cut a covenant. The covenant is lit by fire and sealed in blood under the cover of a pitch black night. It's a scene that should feel primal in its intensity. Except that one of the parties is asleep when the covenant is made. How can Abram be expected to keep up his end of the bargain if he's napping while God makes the terms? The fact is that the cutting of this covenant conveys the depth and seriousness of God's commitment to Abram and to those who follow after him. These elements of smoke and fire, darkness and blood, are meant to convey to us the great significance, the weight of God's promise. And the symbolism is very, very thick. We are meant quite clearly to see the fire pot and the torch as symbols of the presence of God. And the act itself invites us to think of the fiery judgment and the end of all things. And Abram is asleep. The language here is the same used when God removes that rib from Adam in Genesis 2. It's not a normal nap. This is divinely imposed slumber. Parents, how much do you wish that you could just... And Abram is incapable of bearing the responsibility of this covenant made with God because only God is able to bear the cost of human sin and frailty. 
And in the cutting and the keeping of this covenant, God will make himself vulnerable to human failure. So Abram is a witness to God's action, but God passes through those butchered animal pieces alone so that God saves Abram from pledging himself to the impossible. This is a crucial aspect of God's character. God puts up with human failing and does not give up. He endures. God can hold up both ends of the promise. He can stoop to the earth in the incarnation of Jesus Christ without losing anything because that kind of humility is not alien to God's nature. The covenant with Abram shows us that this is who God is and who God has always been, willing to keep his promise and to bring the world back into right relationship no matter what it might cost. Now we know that Abram drifts away. He loses focus. His descendants forget God completely. They chase after false idols. They murder God's prophet and desecrate the holy places. They commit crimes and offenses too numerous to recall. Yet God is faithful to the terms of this covenant even when God's chosen people are incapable of faithfulness. And God who reigns over even the dead things will bear the cost of their failure. There is blood on the ground and the scent of death in the air. And in the darkness, the God who made the stars walks between the split pieces of animals, pledging to be faithful even when Abram and those who come after him stumble and fall. And in the dark night of our souls, when you feel lost and far from God, he stands ready to recall that night on your behalf and to call to mind the promise he made to Abram and to us to never abandon us even when we are far from home and have lost our way completely and cannot see a good future. And God makes that promise because God has tasted suffering and death and resolved not to let suffering and death have the last word. In our moments of crisis, in our darkest hours of loss or fear or anger, Jesus can stand with us in that moment Because in the darkness that surrounds Abram, and even in the darkness of the grave, God is still present. In this gap between life and death, there is one who can walk without fear, because darkness and light are the same to him. He is the one who is present when the stars were born, and the first word was spoken. As the Welsh poet Henry Vaughan puts it, there is in God, some say, a deep but dazzling darkness. So the swirling smoke and the bloody sacrifice and the dreadful, terrifying dark night are not unknown or unfamiliar to God. And this is our hope. We wander and stray like lost sheep. We follow too much the devices and desires of our own hearts, we fail. And yet God is ever willing to come and rescue, even when we are unwilling to repent and turn aside from our selfishness. The cross is the place where that darkness and dreadful night will fall, not just on Abram and on his descendants, who could not keep the covenant, but on the whole world. And yet the cross is not the end of the story. God makes a family for Abram who thought such a thing was too great to even imagine. 
and he makes a way where the no way is possible. He does not remain in the dust of the grave with the broken pieces and the dead things. God is always on a mission of restoration and resurrection and is able to redeem even those who have their hands stained red with God's own blood. And all of this is proper to God's identity. It's who you and I need God to be. One great Swiss preacher said it like this, God shows himself to be the great and true God in the fact that he can and will let his grace bear the cost of suffering, that he is capable and willing and ready for this condescension, this act of extravagance, this far journey. God is so willing to keep his promises that not even humiliation, suffering, and death can drive him away. Christ overcomes sin and death to restore the whole creation to its intended purpose, to fulfill the covenant that God made with God's own self. In this season of Lent, we are acknowledging what God already knows, that we are all sinners in need of a redeemer, and that God is a redeemer ready and willing to save sinners. Lent teaches us to be more like Abram. We may be uncertain about the future and skeptical about God's intentions, and we may need that miraculous injection of faith. We may see the vultures circling in our own lives and wonder how this story may come to a good end, but we must learn from Abram's example. God is still moving even when there is death all around. And we have to trust that no matter how dark it is, God will be our abundance. That God will be more than enough. So what this morning are we holding on to? Because we just are not sure that God can be trusted with it. What are you hiding because you fear what the Lord might see? What must you sacrifice and leave behind in the dust? We, the church, are the people of God. And as such, we are heirs of Abram's trust in God's promises. My hope is that we will come to see with Abram's eyes, with the eyes of faith, and acknowledge that despite the uncertainty of the future and the circumstances around us, we can give up control to the one who called forth the stars and made a family from a wandering nomad. We cannot keep the covenant that God has made for us. We are sinful and dusty creatures who must find our hope in our future in trusting the promises that God makes on our behalf. And the greatest of these promises is the one made to us in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ that we recall at this table week after week. We cannot hope to pass through this life without suffering. We cannot walk the path that is in front of us unscathed. None of us will get out of life alive. But by faith, we place our trust in the one who spoke that word that Abram believed, who made a promise to be with us always, the one who is the Lord even over darkness and death. Amen.